But right now, we are taking a look at some new numbers released from the BC Coroner's Service. And there has been an increase in overdose deaths in BC. The new report shows an average of 3.2 illicit drug toxicity deaths per day in the first four months of the year in BC. And if we look at it month by month, in March of this year, there were 112 deaths. And in April, just last month, 117 deaths. And that is a significant number. It's the first time BC has recorded more than 100 drug deaths back-to-back in back-to-back months since November and December of 2018. Well, joining me on the line to look a little bit more at these numbers is Andy Watson, manager of Strategic Communications with the BC Coroner's Service. Andy, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for the interest. Uh, I know you probably don't have a a cut and dry answer to this question, but do we know why we're suddenly or seeing this increase, this spike back up when it comes to overdose deaths? Yeah, certainly. I think the why question is is on top of everyone's mind. Um, One of the things coroner service does is we investigate deaths to determine who died and how, where, when, and by what means they came to their death. And so as part of our work, we try and release data like we've released today to help our partners uh, get data that can try and help them answer that why question. Um, You know, some of the trends that we've seen in the past, you know, we've been able to identify that males are overrepresented in the data. Uh, People were dying more indoors because of this crisis. Uh, We know that the drug supply is highly toxic with fentanyl detected in the majority of deaths. But the why question really is something that other partners are looking at. And uh, one of the questions for sure that we're we're obviously getting during the the dual public health emergency is whether or not, uh, you know, this this increase in deaths over the last two months is related at all to the fact that we were also dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And certainly uh, we're we're working with partners uh, like the BC Centre for Disease Control and other partners in the healthcare setting and health authorities to try and uh, look more at that. But certainly, as you said off the top, uh, we are we have seen a spike in the past two months. And after, a, you know, seeing a plateauing effect for part of 2019 and even a reduction for part of 2019, you know, this is concerning for us. And we, we will need to continue to monitor this very closely um, to make sure that, uh, you know, we're doing the work that we can to prevent death in similar circumstances. Uh, does it give any insight to this, the fact that no deaths have been reported at any of the supervised consumption or the drug overdose prevention sites? Does that point to the fact people might be overdosing alone more because of the pandemic if they're staying at home? Yeah, and certainly, I mean, in, in centres where the overdose prevention sites and the supervised consumption sites exist, that, that's certainly one theory that's out there. And we'll obviously need to look more carefully at, the, at each investigation to see what, what uh, factors are there. Uh, you know, in rural settings, uh, you know, th- it's also if, if people don't have access to one of those uh, services, um, you know, one of the questions that gets asked is, well, would, would something like that have helped? And I guess a good development for, you know, despite the fact that people continue to die indoors, most of them, or anecdotally, we understand many of them are, are, are using a loan without the ability for somebody to call 911 or, or administer naloxone. We know that last week there was a new app that was launched uh, by the Provincial Health Services Authority uh, called the Lifeguard app. And basically what happens is if somebody's using a substance, they can install this app on their phone and they start the app. And if they don't respond to the app after a certain number of seconds, uh, 911 and emergency services can be dispatched because the, the, the theory is that if they aren't responding to the app, then it means they've come across an adverse batch of drugs. 
And so that, you know, there's different innovative tools that are coming into place to try and help folks that are using substances uh, to be able to do so safely. And if they do come across a toxic supply, uh, that they have the resources in place to try and help uh, ensure that that overdose event doesn't become a fatal uh, illicit drug toxicity death. Uh, do you know, does it have to do with the drug supply right now as well? Because, and again, not to tie everything to the pandemic, but in the early days of the pandemic, there was a lot of attention paid to the fact that Wuhan uh, is known in many ways as kind of ground zero for fentanyl. And there was questioning, well, if Wuhan is under lockdown, does that mean fentanyl is not making it out to other parts of the world? And if that's the case, does that mean fentanyl is not making it into the drug supply and causing these deaths? Yeah, I think that's a great question and a, an extremely important question. Certainly something that BC Centre for Disease Control uh, would be looking at as, as part of their analysis. And, and, and really, I think it is premature for us to answer the, the question uh, because it will require more analysis. But, you know, certainly uh, there's theories out there over, um, you know, all sorts of different reasons why the numbers may have gone up. And, uh, you know, the supply is certainly one of the areas that will get looked at. Um, you know, with tightening of borders as well, with fewer people coming across, uh, you know, uh, Canada-U.S. borders, um, there's discussion around that. Um, folks that may, you know, that may typically have been able to go to a supervised consumption or overdose prevention site, uh, were, there, were there barriers in place for that? What about folks that have been moved into uh, government-provided accommodations? They are getting access to, um, you know, uh, overdose prevention and, and supervised consumption uh, resources. So, you know, is that helping? Uh, it, there's all sorts of different things that are happening right now that add variables to, to you know, a crisis that we were really understanding, I think. And now we, you know, there's a lot of different variables that have been added that are making things a little bit more challenging. And, and certainly as the analysis continues in the months ahead, uh, we'll be very interested to see what that data looks like. Uh, unfortunately, we continue to see, you know, males overrepresented, those particularly 30 to 50 years old. Uh, again, people using indoors, dying often alone. Um, and, and the major centers, uh, we continue to see Vancouver, Surrey, um, highly represented in the data. And certainly, uh, you know, it's for us, we continue to urge that message of, uh, you know, if you need the supports, reach out to a physician um, or somebody in the public health system that can help you. Uh, we know that people use substances for a variety of reasons, and there's a number of root causes why people use drugs. Uh, our hope is that by sharing this data, we can help that those those that are using drugs to be able to do so safely. And if we notice trends that need other solutions, that we can help advocate for those. And certainly, we continue to look at access to safe supply. Uh, some some measures have been put in place that have been very positive, but we'll continue to look at ways that we can improve access and, and even looking at how we create a regulated and evidence-based supportive treatment and recovery system. We know that's a very important pillar in preventing, preventing future deaths, and that's exactly why the coroner's service is here to investigate those deaths to try and help provide recommendations and solutions aimed at preventing death in similar circumstances. All right, uh, Andy, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. I appreciate the interest. Have a great day. We have been talking about uh, the major court ruling earlier today. Meng Wanzhou losing this part of the court battle. That means that she will have to stay in B.C. to fight extradition to the States. Well, immigration lawyer Richard Curland, who joined us earlier to talk about what might play out today, was at the courthouse and has joined us again. Richard, thank you so much. Uh, what are your well, So what's your reaction? You were there as everything unfolded. Your reaction to that? When the underlying foundation is something oppressive, something that's fundamentally 
contrary to Canadian values and law, like uh, human slavery. The court said it's not the last step for Ms. Meng. She has the ability to appeal, have judicial reviews, hear the charter argument that's scheduled for June, uh, the abusive process argument, and importantly, the political key. At the end of the extradition process, it's up to a political minister to decide whether or not to go through with extradition. It's kind of a death row relief power. Uh, and so, <laughs> unfortunately, it comes as a disappointment to Ms. Meng and her team. It certainly will come as a disappointment for the two Michaels. Uh, I, I, I fear that China in retaliation is going to accelerate the criminal process for the two Michaels in China, uh, a country that has a death penalty. And probably you're going to get a swift reaction out of China uh, in the form of trade sanctions. We've seen that before in this case. Uh, Huawei has also issued a statement saying it's disappointed by the ruling today, uh, saying Huawei has repeatedly expressed confidence that Ms. Meng is innocent. Do they continue standing with her, uh, saying that her lawyers will continue to work tirelessly to see that justice is served? So how do you see that playing out from this point forward? Well, uh, I'm waiting to see the disclosure under national security uh, of new evidence uh, new information and documents that likely came from the American Huawei trial that's ongoing, uh, that may yield some more uh, defense, defensive maneuvers uh, for Ms. Meng. Uh, but, you know, this was not the result I was expecting, frankly. And the court is right uh, to consider the long-term interests of the extradition system in Canada. And uh, she came to a decision. Uh, the problem here is that our Canadian law in extradition allows for a political solution. And the mantra that rule of law does not allow Canada to interfere in the judicial process is correct, 100% correct, but that's just one half of the ledger. Our law allows a political minister to intervene. So China is not wrong on putting pressure on Canada. It's just that China hasn't read the playbook or engaged Canadian legal counsel their, their, their justification is wrong. It's not to cause Canada to interfere in the judicial process. It's to cause Canada to make the political decision to free up Ms. Meng. Could they still do that now? Because we've heard from the federal government they don't want to get involved or for that exact reason, saying the judiciary is independent and they can't get involved in this. Yeah, they don't have to get involved in the judiciary. They have other options. Uh, and why would they want to get involved? Uh, they're going to alienate Washington. Uh, and it's not the time before a Trump election to get on his uh, bad Santa list. Hmm. So, so at this point, uh, you mentioned uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. So what do you anticipate? So ch- like you said, China could fast track. What, uh, I mean, how would you even describe? It's not as though they're up on legitimate charges or, or they were taken in for, for some truly legitimate, they were suspected of a crime. What do you think will happen to them now? Well, I, I keep an open mind. I, I, I don't use uh, the Canadian ruler to measure laws in China. It's two countries for a good reason. Uh, but uh, having said that, I, I think that China can accelerate their process. Uh, whatever improvements in living conditions they may have enjoyed, I don't expect that to continue. And here's the worst. 
uh, Canada and China have a history of diplomatic and trade irritants when it comes to a single human being, and I point to the case of Mr. Lai. Mr. Lai was here for a decade and was the number one irritant between China and Canada, and I fear that Ms. Meng may enter that pool. Uh, at present, uh, this case looks like it's going to take years to resolve, uh, and that helps no one. So what happens now? What we know uh, that Meng Wanzhou left the courthouse so with her uh, with her uh, security team, got into her limo to go back to one of her homes. So what do you anticipate? I mean, could they go through this ruling and decide if they wanted to try and appeal it? Yeah, um, it's all going to be ruled up into uh, the uh, appeal process down the road. Uh, I don't think you put uh, interim torpedoes into the legal waters. Uh, that doesn't work. Uh, it, it just means anxiety and stress for her, uh, but that pales in comparison of the situation of the two Michaels. That's a very serious thing. Chinese justice, when it grinds to an end, it literally will grind to an end. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's not a good day for uh, the people concerned. It is a good day uh, for justice and the public interest in the long term when it comes to the uh, context of extradition and fraud in Canadian law. Uh, the, <laughs> the decision's impeccable. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of losers. Do you think that, that it's a case then, like you said, there could have been political interference or political, uh, 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 there could have been some political uh, take to this. Is it, was it a, <laughs> a, a choice of who do we want to annoy least, the United States or China? Okay, that's the, that's the, billion-dollar question, and frankly, how did we get here? Here's what I've been mulling. How is it that Jody Wilson-Raybould did not sign this extradition case for process? And how is it that her cabinet confidence was pulled back only to SNC-Lavalin, another case she refused, perhaps, to process? Uh, so the question is, will Canada allow Jody Wilson-Raybould to disclose, pull the veil back from SNC-Lavalin all the way back to Huawei, to Ms. Meng, uh, because I note that one of the very first things uh, Mr. Justice Lametti did, uh, sorry, <laughs> the minister uh, did, Lametti, when he uh, uh, engaged his uh, formal duties was to sign off on this extradition case. So what was wrong? Why didn't Jody sign? There, it's the missing piece of this whole puzzle. If this thing was entirely political, was it um, uh, driven by the prime minister's office to satisfy Washington? Uh, did uh, Ms. Raybould refuse to sign on the case because she may have come to a determination, insufficient evidence or abusive process? And then <laughs> the, the prime minister found a justice minister who would be more willing to have a second look. That's an important consideration in the context of, um, of the overall big picture, how we got here today. All right, Richard, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, as always. <laughs> Thank you. Take care, Jill.
Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Lots happening this afternoon. We are expecting to hear from the Premier at 1.30 as well. The SpaceX mission is taking place. I know a lot of people will be watching that live. But we are going to shift gears, no pun intended, and take a look at a new ruling that deals with distracted driving. And if you are confused as to what actually is, what constitutes distracted driving in this province, fear not, you are not the only one. Kyla Lee joins me now, lawyer with Acumen Law, to shed some light on this. Kyla, thanks so much for being back with us. Thank you for having me. A busy week for you. I know you were talking about Grey Lightning with Mike Smith and now this ruling, and you've written about this. So what's new or what's different now when it comes to distracted driving in BC? So the big difference is there was a BC Supreme Court judgment released yesterday that overruled effectively an earlier decision that said, unless you're touching your phone with your hands, you're not violating the use provision. In this case, the driver had their phone wedged between their leg and the vehicle and was holding it in place using their leg. And the BC Supreme Court ruled that that did violate the law and does constitute distracted driving. Does it matter or do we know in this case, was the person actually texting or did they have the phone that they were using it? There is no evidence that they were doing anything with the phone other than that it was wedged in place with their legs. So there was no texting, there was no talking, there was no music, which obviously would have been a a clear violation of the law. But just having it there was the issue. And it was wedged, from what I understand, it was wedged, though, in the way with the screen facing up. And is that why the judge in this case said it could have been being used? That was part of the reason was the screen uh, facing up suggested that the driver was intending to glance at the screen. There was no evidence to support that, uh, however, and the definition of use really came down to whether the driver was holding the phone by having it wedged in there because holding the phone alone is sufficient to constitute use. So how does this compare then, or or when we go back to the provincial court decision, because that was a decision that had a lot of people questioning, can I put my phone in my cup holder, or can my phone be sitting on the seat, and there seemed to be some clarification at that point. There was, and the provincial court decision essentially said, unless you're touching your phone with your hands, the ordinary definition of, of use constitutes um, uh, constitutes the use of your hands to grasp or clutch with your actual hands. Um, and so this overrules that. Uh, it does provide clarity in the sense that if you're touching the phone with any part of your body, you could um, come into violation of the law. Um, but it hasn't changed the landscape as far as having your phone loose in your cup holder or loose on the seat. Those activities are still permissible. Okay, that's that's good to know. What if you were, say, wearing a shirt with a front pocket and the phone was in your pocket? Well, this is something that's never been adjudicated by the courts. So we don't actually know with a definition or a court ruling whether this violates the law. My interpretation is that having the phone in a pocket or attached to your body with some other thing than the vehicle would fall into the definition of affixing the phone to your person, which is permissible under the legislation. All right. And and this whole idea of holding and that this is holding the phone. So is it illegal for me to drive and hold a coffee cup? Nope. <laughs> so I can be holding piping hot coffee in a cup where I'm drinking it as I drive along and that's fine. But I can't be holding, not using, but but even holding or touching the phone. 
That's exactly correct. And it's a little bit arbitrary, the distinction between the two, but the rationale behind it appears to be that uh, the legislature is trying to prohibit people from holding something that's going to pose a distraction um, because you're going to be more tempted to look at your phone and to respond to something that comes up on the screen than you are going to be to, you know, stare at your coffee cup lovingly or something like that. <laughs> right. Although, and again, I guess it's it's how you look at it, but if I had it mounted to my dash in a holder, which I have in my vehicle, that's fine. But but the screen can still light up when someone texts. I, I, I would try and avoid, obviously, looking at it. I wouldn't engage. But isn't that the same level of distraction as it is if it's wedged between my thigh and the seat? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's intellectually dishonest to say that you can have the phone mounted and somehow be incapable of looking at it, because, of course, looking at it is prohibited while you're driving. Um, But that that incapability doesn't extend if the phone is in your hand. I I just see that as a real inconsistency in the law that needs to be tweaked. Because you also and, and maybe not so much if you're if you're going down the freeway, but you also at a red light would look at the stereo in your car when you're pushing the buttons to see what station you're on. Or the uh, temperature controls in your car to adjust the temperature or the level of uh, air that's blowing at you. There's all sorts of things in your car that are big distractions. The newer model Teslas come with very large computer screens that are supposedly permissible, even though they're a huge distraction. And so this is a BC Supreme Court ruling. So what, do you think this will change then the number of, of times or what we see people written up for when it comes to distracted driving? I think we're going to go back to seeing a lot more tickets issued for people who have the phone just sitting in the vehicle, because if the officer can say that the phone was in some way touching the person's body, based on this ruling, that might be good enough for them to justify issuing the ticket. Whereas before, we were looking for something more than just physical contact to get to the point of committing the violation. Do you anticipate we might see a case go to the appeal court in B.C.? I think it's important for cases like this to go to the Court of Appeal, and this is one that I think should go there because it does raise an important legal issue that has a lot of people confused and has the potential to affect a lot of drivers in this province. And I know you talked about this uh, again when you were talking about the case uh, of the woman who was given the the excessive speeding ticket to the uh, elderly woman, and and the the issue of discretion came up during that conversation. Uh, There's also obviously discretion, isn't there, when uh, somebody is pulled over and, yeah, their phone might be wedged between their thigh and the seat, or or there would be discretion, would there not, on the the officer in that that alone, they wouldn't be obliged, obligated to give you a ticket if, if they realized that you weren't actually doing anything wrong. That's correct. The officer at the end of the day has the discretion to choose whether or not to give you a ticket or a warning or to educate you about the law. And I think for at least a period after this judgment has been released, education, not enforcement, should be the priority for police. They should explain the ruling to individuals, explain what the law requires of them, and make sure that people are fully informed. Because people might be relying on the decision that's been overturned and purporting to do something that they believe is is lawful. Right, because this is now a change in in what exactly what you can do. And I think people might exactly that if they've heard of the previous decision would think, okay, now I finally know I have some clarity on what the law is, but that's not quite what it is anymore. And a lot of people aren't paying the same attention that they would ordinarily pay to this because they're spending less time in their vehicles, because we're not you know, going into the office as much and because things are, are shut down in part uh, due to COVID-19. So it's important that the message gets out there. And that starts with police officers educating drivers as they're conducting their enforcement activity.
Do you think it matters the amount of experience a driver has in that if an officer pulls over an L driver or an N driver, does that, I mean, I guess it could go either way. Either that person gets a bit more leeway for being a new driver, or maybe that person should not because you're a new driver, you should know better and know that you have to pay attention to the road. The level of experience you have should absolutely play into the decision that an officer makes. It's one thing to say to a person who has a clean driving record for 20 years who's made a mistake because they were confused about the state of a highly confusing area of the law that they need to figure it out versus a young driver who should have recently taken their road test, who should be studying perhaps for another upcoming road test, who should be staying apprised of the law um, as much as possible, and who has less experience, so is more likely to be distracted by things in the vehicle because they just haven't adjusted to how to drive safely yet. All right. So just so we're clear, so where can you keep your phone in your vehicle right now legally? If you are not using it for any of its functions, talk, text, GPS, anything like that, you can keep it in your cup holder, on the seat loose, as long as you're not touching it with any part of your body. Uh, If you are using any of its functions, it has to be securely mounted to the vehicle or to your person. And what could get you a ticket? Uh, talking, texting, or doing anything with the phone while it's not mounted. If the phone is mounted and you have an N doing any of those features with the phone, and of course, touching your phone at any point uh, when it's uh, the vehicle is in motion and on the roadway uh, can also get you a ticket. So that's, and the difference there, it could be a difference so small of it's sitting on the passenger seat or it's sitting on the driver's seat where it's touching you. Exactly. All right. Well, interesting uh, developments there. Kyla, thank you so much for coming on to uh, explain them to us and to bring us up to date. I know there's probably still going to be a fair amount of confusion, but always good to get the very latest on that. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, you've probably noticed in your neighborhood, more kids are playing outside. What with schools being closed, people staying closer to home, still wanting to get out there, get that fresh air and get some exercise. The uh, new study that was done, this was a survey done by BCAA. It was conducted by Insights West. It shows that 52% of British Columbians are in fact seeing more kids playing outside. But people are also noticing some bad driving. So let's bring in Steve Mossop, the president of Insights West, to talk a little bit more about the findings. Steve, thanks so much for being here. Happy to be here. What kinds of driving or or disturbing driving behavior are people seeing? Well, the poll was really inspired by a story that came out of Toronto where there was a speeder that was caught doing over 300 kilometers an hour. And, you know, we started asking a question to my colleagues, uh, are we noticing that kind of behavior? And so it led to us approaching our partner at BCAA and uh, coming up with a poll that did cover a number of bad driving behaviors, and one of them being that about 50% of people do believe that excessive speeding has increased during COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, I'm glad you did this or that there is some uh, number that we can put behind it because even anecdotally I've been talking to people and people have been saying that they've noticed not only excessive speeding but people running stop signs and they noticed that this kind of change as the pandemic got as more and more people were staying home and as the pandemic was underway. Absolutely and you're right the the social chatter on this became louder and louder and, and so we did want to quantify it. We did find that uh, with the schools closed, uh, particularly in the school zones, people seem to think that they have free reign. So we're seeing speeding and driving through stop signs. About 42% of British Columbians have seen that behavior. And, and the numbers across the board increase if you're a parent. So if you're a parent, you are hyper aware of this. So that number goes up to 54% if you're a parent of a, of a child of any age. And and I guess the reason being, is it people that, that 
notice that there's not as much traffic on the road, so they're taking more chances, or it's hard to kind of figure out why all of a sudden people are driving like this. I think it is. I, I think there's less um, there's less in the way, and I, there's a perception, I believe, that people don't feel that the police are out in full force. And yet, you know, the messages from ICBC and the police are exactly the opposite. Then, no, we are watching. We're actually more aware, so watch out. But I think the perception is that there's a bit of a, a free reign out there. And I guess thinking that even if you speed in a, a school zone or roll through the stop sign, if school's not in, that I guess that you don't stand to get the same penalty or that or that exactly that, that maybe police aren't paying attention because school's not in right now. Yeah, I think that is, a, again, a perception that uh, has to be countered with the, the reality that actually the laws still apply. It's a, it's a time of day and the day of week. Uh, and do you think maybe the findings are also because so many more people are walking and cycling and kids are out there, families are out there trying to get that exercise and are, are rather than being at work for eight hours a day in a lot of cases, they're actually out and being able to witness these things? Exactly. And we're not in gyms and we're not uh, indoors at any other uh, location. So we are getting out more and, and we're seeing that the parks are crowded and uh, we are seeing uh, th- those behaviors in and around parks. Uh, the survey also takes a look at more traffic. I know we had counterflow uh, put in this week, which is a, what has been the first time in quite a while at the Massey Tunnel. Uh, people are seeing or noticing more traffic on the roads. They are, and that is a gradual increase. Uh, they're 46% of noticing increase in traffic, especially in residential neighborhoods compared to when the restrictions first started. So we are becoming more aware. Uh, even on your traffic reports, you, you can see that there is there's more activity, more action. Um, but uh, overall, 64% of BC residents have noticed an increase in vehicles on the road compared to when the restrictions first started. And is the concern, I would imagine, I mean, the concern is always there when we have more people on the roads, if people are driving in a dangerous way. Uh, but school is going to be back on June 1st. And granted, it's going to not be as many kids, as many people, but there are going to be kids back in those school zones. There will be not only kids in the school zones, but even the kids at home, they're getting outside, right? They're going for walks. Uh, we have a kid right now that's out for a walk, and it's uh, that's, what, that's what happens when, when you're cooped up all day. And was there a big difference with people, did you find, that were they talking about traffic overall or on more thoroughfares or on the residential streets? Uh, both. Uh, there is a distinction. So uh, 43% have known as more traffic on residential streets specifically, and then uh, more traffic in uh, overall was uh, 64%. And I wonder, too, what plays into that, because when we first started seeing the restrictions, and I think a lot of people, when we, especially in Vancouver and perhaps some other places, too, where the parking, was, was, uh, parking became free, people who could make the choice to drive, I think for a lot of the, that were driving because it was free parking, and that meant you maybe didn't have to get on transit with other people, with strangers, and you could maybe feel safer doing that. I would think perhaps even in the beginning, that led to some of the increased traffic. Exactly. We did a poll a few weeks ago that talked about the, the types of activities that people were willing to do when things went into phase two. And, and riding transit was definitely on the list of, uh, even though it's open and ready, uh, there's an there's a unwillingness among about 45% of the population to just go back to business as usual. And so, so BCAA is warning people, and I know that they, are, they always talk about safety in school zones. We generally have this uh, in September, though, when kids are going back to school as a refresher course or a reminder for drivers. But it almost seems like we need another kind of post-pandemic reminder. Yes, and that, you're right. They've been doing that survey for about four years in a row now, and it is a reminder because uh, 
uh, over the past four years, we've seen perceptions of driver behavior get worse, not better. So they're constantly um, pushing the safety aspect of, of the school zones. And in fact, in this particular poll, they're, they're giving out free signs to neighborhoods and families that want to uh, have a slow down sign in their own neighborhood that's sponsored by BCA. Hmm. Because it does seem as well that we are moving into a scenario in Vancouver and some other places as well where businesses are now being encouraged to go into the parking lots or to go onto the sidewalks. Uh, if anything, there's going to be not as many places for people to drive, even if it's temporary, uh, moving forward. And and think the summer, you know, when the hotels open up and people are really encouraged to get out in their own communities, I think we'll even see more. So this this is an issue that will grow in in its importance. And did it break down as far as communities in BC or was it throughout the province? Uh, it was throughout the province, but we didn't see, Metro Vancouver was definitely heightened. So we did see more uh, concern uh, in, in those areas. Uh, let me just see if I could pull up a, a couple of them here. Metro Vancouver, yeah, it's about 10 points higher in uh, Metro Van versus the, the rest of the province. And that's just a congestion issue. Hmm, all right. Well, we'll leave it there. Some interesting findings uh, concerning, especially for parents, I'm sure. Steve, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jill.